Well, greetings, everyone. If you would take your copy of God's Word and open to Colossians, to Colossians chapter number one. My assignment for this session is to speak on the gospel-inspired gratitude, gospel-inspired gratitude. And so the text for this session will be Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14, but with a specific focus on verses 12 through 14. Colossians 1, and we will begin to read in verse number 9. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, you can follow along with me beginning to read in verse 9, hear now the word of the living God, and it reads as follows. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthen with all might, according to his glorious power, and to all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us unto the kingdom of his dear Son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless our time now in your word as we seek to understand exactly what you would have us to see and to glean from this text. We pray that we would understand with fresh eyes and ears and hearts the importance of gratitude, of thankfulness, of a joyful Christianity. And we ask, Lord, your blessings on us as individuals, our homes, and our local churches that are represented in this session. Now we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we consider this text before us, undoubtedly we recognize that this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Colossae. Colossae was located in the western part of Asia Minor, and it was a strategic city. It was at the intersection of two very well-known trade routes, and it was for this very reason that there was a specific community that was, was prospering in this very specific location, and yet with all of the importing and exporting that took place there, a strategic city known for its textile production and And yet, of course, with all of the trade that was coming in and out of this city, unfortunately, something else was imported into this very city as well, specifically into the church that was in this city. And what was imported was false teaching, specifically heresy. And so Paul writes to this very church with an affection for his brothers and sisters in Christ to warn them because some were retracting backwards into their former ways of living, but they were also, in many ways, given over to the false teaching. Colossae, again, was this very strategic city, but imported into this city, into the church, was vain philosophy. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, we find these words, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. It was also, this heresy was very much connected to legalism. Consider the words in uh, chapter 2, verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So this specific heresy that was plaguing the church in the city of Colossae was full of empty deceit, vain deceit, and it was a specific man-centered philosophy that was riddled with legalism. But we can also see this indication as we read and as we reference this letter that Paul was also addressing some problems whereby some believers were actually engaged in the worship of angels. 
And so the preeminence of Christ was diminished. But yet when we come to this very passage, in verses 9 through 14, really what we find here is a prayer. It's a prayer of the Apostle Paul for this specific church. And so from the day he said that we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you. And what does he pray for this church? Well, one of the things that he prays is what we want to focus in on in verses 12 through 14. He's praying that this church would give thanks to God. In other words, he's praying that this church would have a grateful heart, a joyful Christianity, which is exactly what you and I should long for as well as we think about this, this present evil age that we journey through. Now, as we think about the importance of a, of a joyful Christianity, think about examples who have gone before us. Consider, if you will, John Owen. Ten of the eleven children of John Owen died in infancy. The one child that survived infancy actually died before Owen. And so when you think about his life and you think about all of the trials, to lose a child is, is a, a very difficult thing. To lose ten of them would be almost a living hell for many people. But consider, if you will, what John Owen once wrote. He said, quote, Many complain that when they think of spiritual things, worldly thoughts intrude. Well then, he says, when you think of worldly things, do spiritual things intrude? If they do, then there is evidence that you are spiritually minded, end quote. So in other words, Owen put forth effort. He labored to think on the things that were above. John Bunyan is another worthy example. For preaching Christ, he was put in jail there in Bedford, and he spent 12 years of his life there, missing great moments with his children, missing great opportunities of, of love and family life with his wife. And all of this for what reason? For preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet Bunyan wrote, in times of affliction, we commonly meet with the sweetest experiences of the love of God. When we think of the Puritans, many of them experienced the plagues that doomed Europe and gripped people with fear, yet they kept their gaze on Christ, and they looked to God for encouragement. And we can learn much from them in our present day, can we not? As we think about the present evil days in which we live, and all of the complexities of, of human ideologies that plague the church, social justice is now seeking to replace the gospel with critical race theory and intersectionality, vaccine passports being considered for local church membership, progressive politics, the perversion of human sexuality, the redefining of marriage, and the perversion of the pulpit, and the continual diminishing of the academy that was once that was once founded for the very purpose of training ministers for the gospel of Jesus. When we think about Harvard, for, for example, just yesterday appearing in the New York Post was an article describing the new president of chaplains at Harvard, who's 44-year-old Greg Epstein. He's a humanist, and he's the author of the book titled, Good Without God, What a Billion Non-Religious People Do believe. And what he says, what Epstein says, is, is that we don't look to a God for answers. He added, we are each other's answers. When the student body was polled and asked what they thought of this choice, they responded and said, at a time defined by strained warlike identity culture, for many college-age individuals, Epstein's focus on collaboration is more relevant than one of simply maintaining the status quo of worship, end quote. So that's what the world thinks about the church today. And as we think about all of these complexities, all of the problems that we see in the news, the unrest in Afghanistan, bombs exploding, soldiers dying, Americans trapped, and then, of course, you add to it COVID-19 fears. We are constantly battling the world, the flesh, and the devil. 
And yet we must fix our gaze like the Puritans, like Owen, like Bunyan, upon God. We must learn to think about the things that are above. We must set our focus on this world through the lens, if you will, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let us consider the words of Paul here to the church at Colossae. I want us to see four specific things in verses 12 through 14 that we should learn to be thankful for as we examine these words, this prayer of the Apostle Paul. The first thing that we see is that we should be thankful for our gospel inheritance. In verse number 12, we see this language, giving thanks. This is the the key focus. Unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. It is through the gospel that we have received an inheritance. Indeed, by the power of the gospel, God has qualified us for this inheritance. God has qualified us. In other words, to to make us meet, to, to smooth out that language from the King James, it means that we have been qualified. We have been qualified. And so we must see, first and foremost, as we think about the fact that we are to be thankful, that we are to be grateful, that angels are thankful for this, as we look at Uh, the the reality of angels rejoicing in the salvation of sinners. But as we look to see what the Bible says about angels, we see that angels are actually thankful to God. We see that Jesus in His earthly ministry exemplified a thankful spirit. But yet believers, we who are redeemed are called to be thankful. Thankful. This word thanks here, give thanks, means to express appreciation for benefits or blessings, to give thanks, to express this thanks. And when we see this, as Paul uses this word some 24 times in his letters in the New Testament, what we see is that he uses this word sometimes in the positive, sometimes he uses it in the negative. But needless to say, he directs the believers of the churches to be thankful, to be thankful. And this is no generic gratitude, by the way. We live in a world that's full of generic gratitude. We live in a world that's very shallow. And our world spends millions of dollars every single year to print, to publish, to market books on self-esteem and self-worth and self-image. And so when we think about that, our world is consumed with, with what we think about ourselves, how we feel. And yet, tragically, we continue to see an increase, even with all of the self-image and self-esteem books, an increase in self-murder, an increase in suicide. And so what Paul is laboring for here is that we would not be like the world, that we would not have this shallow gratitude, this generic gratitude, giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he writes to the church in the city of Ephesus. In Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always for all things, he writes almost the identical words in Colossians 3.17. And we see him using this word thanks in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. And then the very next words, we should pay close attention. This is what he says, quench not the Spirit. Quench not the Spirit. You see, we are called to to be thankful people, grateful people, if you are indeed redeemed. And how were we saved? How did we receive, receive this grand inheritance that's mentioned here in verse number 12? Well, it was by grace, which hath made us meet to be partakers. This idea carries the, this idea of, of making someone sufficient or adequate. That's the idea. And so we, we must be reminded of the fact that, that we have received the grace of God, not because we earned it, not because God looked down upon us like children do at a, at a 
elementary school at, at recess when they're going to play kickball and they're going to pick a team and he sees potential. No, that's not what grace is. We did not earn it. We did not deserve it. And so this inheritance that's spoken of here was not something that we labored for. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You see, uh, in fact, when, when Paul was standing before King Agrippa and he was testifying and, and he was answering for his own life and his own ministry, he said the following in Acts twenty six eighteen. He says, his goal, his calling is to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. This inheritance is something that we receive by the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we recognize that the Bible teaches that God saves us, it says, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. So we were dead. We were unable to to choose God, unable to love God, unable to do anything to please God in the flesh. And so it is that James Montgomery Boyce said it this way, he is dead toward God, but he is alive to all wickedness, end quote. This is the condition of the human heart prior to salvation. This is why salvation and the inheritance that's mentioned here in verse 12 is by the grace of God. It is not something that we labor for. Consider this, the state of our, of our soul from birth, even from conception. In Psalm 51.5, we find this language, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In Psalm 58.3, we find this language, The wicked are estranged from the womb. Now, I recognize that if you're in this room and you, you are the proud grandparent of a new grandbaby, then you want to tell everyone about this child. Look how precious, look how wonderful. In fact, even young parents are so proud of their children. On Instagram, you see every sort of picture that you can possibly imagine. But what we need to remember is that as precious as these children are, even from their mother's womb, the Bible teaches that they are outside of God, that they are depraved, that they are sinful. John 6, says, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. The word draw there in this text means literally to drag away by force. And so it is God's grace that brings us to Himself. It is God's grace that rescues us. In fact, it was Spurgeon that said it this way, I might preach to you forever. I might borrow the eloquence of Demosthenes or of Cicero, but you will not come unto Christ. I might beg of you on my knees with tears in my eyes and show you the horrors of hell and the joys of heaven, the sufficiency of Christ, and your own lost condition. But you would none of you come unto Christ of yourselves unless the Spirit that rested on Christ should draw you. It is true of all men in their natural condition, he says, that they will not come unto Christ, end quote. This inheritance, this glorious, wonderful inheritance that we read of in verse number 12, we receive by grace. It is God who makes us worthy. It is God who draws us to Himself. It is God who qualifies us. And it's certainly not of works. In our human flesh, the Bible teaches in Proverbs 21.10, the soul of the wicked desireth evil. Jeremiah 17.9 says, it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And in John 3.20, we hear these words, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So we are walking about, carrying on in the, in the deeds of the flesh, 
And according to 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul writes to the church in the city of Corinth and says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. What is the goal of the wicked one, you say? Well, even the devil himself, the goal is to keep us blinded. 2 Corinthians 4.4, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Indeed, it was Martin Luther in his book, Bondage of the Will, that said the following, quote, free will without God's grace is not free at all but is the permanent prisoner and bond slave of evil, since it cannot turn itself to good. He goes on and says, Man does not do evil against his will under pressure as though he were taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged into it like a thief being dragged off against his will to punishment. But he does it spontaneously and voluntarily. And this willingness or volition is something which he cannot in his own strength eliminate, restrain, or alter, end quote. You see, all throughout the Bible, we see this language of sovereign grace. Titus 3.5 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Oftentimes in the in the South, you will hear people say, well, pastor, just, just give us the gospel. Don't talk to us about all of this, this, you know, this Calvinism. Don't talk to us about all this sovereignty stuff. Just give us Jesus. You'll hear language like that in the South often. And so, let's just give them John, John's gospel. John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, this is the grace of God that brings us to this grand inheritance. And what is this grand inheritance? This inheritance of the saints in light. An inheritance is something that we receive, but something that we do not labor for. An inheritance is something that is given to you. It's bestowed upon you. But it's not something that you earn. It's not something that you work for. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, we are called the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, we hear this language. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I don't know if any of you in this room have received an inheritance. Well, how's that inheritance doing today? Is it rusting? Have you spent most of it? Is the value less today than it was when you received it? You see, the inheritance that we have in Christ that's been granted to us by the grace of God in Jesus never diminishes value. And you might be looking at the stock market. You might be trying to to track whether or not your investment in Delta is going to work out well for you with all this COVID stuff. You might be looking at all sorts of things, trying to figure out how your inheritance is, is functioning. But according to this text, it is reserved in heaven for us. It is not going down in value. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. 
us, by whom also he made the worlds. Jesus, heir of all things. Think about this. Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Do you hear this? The Bible says that Jesus is the heir of all things. And, and if you are in Christ and you are a joint heir with Christ, you inherit the whole world. Romans 4.13, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So, in some ways, our inheritance that's spoken of here in verse number 12 is glorified humanity, glorified flesh, perfect life without sin, food without decay, Streets of gold, gates of pearl, no more sin, no more disease, no more diabetes, no more pain, no more death, no more funerals, no more tears. But beyond the streets of gold and the gates of pearl, the major focus of our inheritance is centered upon God Himself. Psalm 73 verse 26 My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, dear friend, if if you were to die and go to heaven, and you had streets of gold and gates of pearl, and you had food without end, without decay, and if you've had COVID, like myself, back last December, and have yet to recover your sense of smell and taste, which has been a really bad year this year. And so now you have renewed taste buds. You can taste the the wonderful food of the Lord provided for you day by day. And you can walk the streets of gold and consider the wonder of heaven itself. But yet, God was not there. Would it truly be heaven? Would it truly be heaven at all? You see, that's the point. Oftentimes we think about, well, when so-and-so dies, we we go to funerals and we hear ministers talk about someone enjoying their mother or their father or their children or their friends or their fellow church members. And certainly we can say that we will know one another and be known of one another, but the main focus is that we are with God. We are with God. God is with us. When we consider Hebrews 11.10, Abraham is in view there in this wonderful chapter that's oftentimes uh, referred to as the hall of faith. And it says of Abraham, for he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. You see, Abraham was not content in this present evil age. He was longing, longing, if you will, for something greater. And so this inheritance that we read of in verse number 12 should cause us to be grateful, to be joyful, to be thankful, Christians. Second of all, give your attention to verse 13. Paul says, we are to give thanks to the Father, and then he says this in verse number 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Now, in the New Testament, we find two specific words related in many ways to salvation. There is one word that is translated saved, sozo. And it's it's a very common word. If you've ever studied the Greek language, it's one of the very first vocabulary words that you're issued. And then there's another word that's used here by the Apostle Paul. It's not as common. It's used 18 times in the New Testament and is the word that Paul employs here, translated delivered. It means to rescue from danger. It means to deliver someone from peril. And the idea that Paul is communicating here is established in the pages of God's Word. Consider, if you will, in Psalm 68, verse 20, God is spoken of as the God of salvation. The God of salvation. 
In Psalm 40, verse 17, God is referred to as the deliverer. In Psalm 70, verse 5, God, the Lord, is spoken of as the deliverer. In Psalm 144, verses 1 and 2, a psalm of David says, Blessed be the Lord, my strength, which teacheth my hands to war, and my fingers to fight. My goodness and my fortress, my high tower, and, listen to the language here, my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I trust, who subdueth my people under me. David refers to the Lord as his deliverer, his deliverer. Consider, if you will, the language of Ephesians 2, 2, as Paul writes to the church in the city of Ephesus, he says, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You see, this was the the way that you and I lived prior to our salvation. It doesn't matter how early in life you were saved. It doesn't matter how early in life you were when God delivered you. The fact of the matter is simply this. You were a rebel to God. And you were held in the bondage, uh, in the power of darkness. And yet in verse 13, we need to be thankful Christians because God has delivered us from the power of darkness. Think about the way that Satan is described in the pages of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 2. He's called the prince of the power of the air. In Luke chapter 11 verse 15, Satan is referred to as the prince of demons. Satan is, is given the name Satan, which literally is used 52 times in the Bible, and it means adversary. He is sometimes referred to as the devil, which means the slanderer, the one who slanders. Satan is called the old serpent or the great dragon. He is depicted as a roaring lion, which alludes to his power. He is called the evil one in John 17, the destroyer in in Revelation chapter 9, and he's also referred to as the tempter in Matthew chapter 4. Satan is called the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of the brethren. Consider the words of John Flavel. He says, quote, a guilty conscience is the devil's anvil on which he fabricates all these swords and spears with which the guilty sinner pierces and wounds himself, end quote. You see, it is the desire, the devilish agenda of Satan himself to cause us to have a lack of joy and gratitude for our salvation. John Trapp once said, quote, One small drop of guilt troubles the whole sea of outward comforts, end quote. Prior to our salvation, we were held in bondage to the power of darkness. We had eyes but could not see. We had ears but could not hear. We had a will, but it was in bondage to lies until God, until God delivered us, until He delivered us. This is why it is that Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, And Can It Be, this language, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You see, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Is that we were in bondage. We were in chains. We were in darkness. And yet, the dungeon flamed with light. Chains falling off. Heart is now free. We rose, went forth, and followed thee. This is why we should have this gospel-inspired gratitude. Give thanks to the Father. Verse 12. Well, now, verse 14, number 3, we are to give thanks to the Father. We are to be grateful. We are to be thankful for our redemption. 
our redemption. Notice verse 14. In whom we have redemption through His blood. We have been translated into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And we have this redemption through the blood of God's Son. The word redemption here means to buy back a slave. It means to purchase one of the captives and then to make them free. It literally depicts the idea of a master walking up to an auction block to pay the full price of a slave and then to take their shackles off and to set them free under the reign of a new master. That's the picture of redemption. You see, in Romans chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says this, Being then made free from sin, you became servants of righteousness. We must always remember, beloved, always remember this, is that when we think of this idea of being set free from the bondage of sin, we are not free to just roam. We're not free to just live our lives however we want, to just do whatever we want to do to say whatever we want to say, to spend our time doing whatever we want to spend our time doing. No, we're never free to just please ourselves. But being made free from the bondage of sin, we now are free to be the servants of another master. Specifically here in verse number 18, servants of righteousness. But in verse 22, notice the language, chapter 6 of Romans. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God. You have your fruit unto holiness and the end, everlasting life. You see, this is the way that the Bible depicts the Christian life. Is that we have been delivered. And yet we have received this grand inheritance that's that's reserved in heaven for us. And yet we are no longer bound by the shackles of sin, but we are now servants of God. Servants of God. You see, in Christ, through the work of redemption, we are free from this bondage. We are free now to live in obedience to God, something that was impossible in our human flesh. We are free to now love God, to walk with God, to honor God, to obey God, to worship God, to serve God. The word servant that's used here in Romans chapter 6 means to to make someone a slave. That's the, the tense in which it's used. To make someone a slave. By the freedom that we have received in God through Christ... We have been made to be slaves of God. We are slaves of God. Now, when we hear the word slave, we oftentimes read the Bible backwards, which is a faulty hermeneutic always, through American slavery. But we we must remember that the Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire, 10 to 15% of the total population were slaves. In other words, there were five to seven million slaves in the Roman Empire when the Apostle Paul is writing the New Testament. And so when he uses that language, he understands he's using it for a reason. He is, he's using it for a picture. And so oftentimes, if you went bankrupt, someone would sell themselves off into slavery. They were allowed to own homes. They were to work jobs. They could be educated They could actually own their own businesses and still yet be a slave. This is the picture that we see in the Roman Empire. Yes, there are bad examples in the Roman Empire as well. But the point being is that Paul is using this word in a very specific way to show us that we do not belong to ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This should cause us to be grateful Christians. 
Let me ask you a question. Why should it be that if you claim to be a Christian that you always walk around life looking like you're sucking on a lemon? Should that be the case? Should people come across you in the normal ebb and flow of life, in the journey of life, and see you as someone who is always with your face down, always with your countenance that looks depressed, always seem to have a cloud of darkness hovering about you? Is that the way that a Christian is depicted in the Bible, in the pages of Scripture? Well, that's not what we see Paul saying here. He's saying that we should look differently. You see, it is the gospel of God that causes us, the fruit of the, of the gospel of God, the fruit of the Spirit indeed results in joy, which is this gratitude, this thankfulness that we should enjoy. Last of all, in verse number 14, at the end of verse 14, we should see that we are to be thankful for the forgiveness of sin. In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness here means the act of freeing from obligation or guilt or punishment. It's this idea of cancellation. J.C. Ryle describes the true Christian, and he says this, quote, Ask him in what he trusts for the forgiveness of his many sins, and he will tell you in the death of Christ. Ask him in what righteousness he hopes to stand innocent at the judgment day, and he will tell you it is the righteousness of Christ, end quote. You see, this is why we can sing, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. You see, this is the forgiveness of sin. Jesus' blood releases us from the slave market of sin. Jesus' blood satisfies holy justice. As the Lamb of God, Jesus is sacrificed for every last one of our sins. Jesus is offered up the righteous for the unrighteous, the holy for the unholy, the king for the condemned, the sacred for the sinful, the savior for the sinner. And when we read in the pages of Scripture that they crucified him, it should cause us to have heart palpitation, spiritually speaking. God's Son died. The crucifixion invented by the Persians, practiced by the Phoenicians and the Egyptians, perfected by the Romans. The Romans referred to the cross as the infamous stake. J.C. Ryle said, quote, The sufferings described in it, speaking of the crucifixion, would fill our minds with mingled horror and compassion if they had been inflicted on one who was only a man like ourselves. But when we reflect that the sufferer was the eternal Son of God, we are lost in wonder and amazement. The first Adam damned us, but it's the last Adam who saved us. The first Adam led us away from God, but it's the last Adam that brought us near to God. It is the first Adam that imputed to us, or to our account, if you will, the guilt of sin, but it's the last Adam that imputed to our account the righteousness of God. The first Adam cursed us by birthright, but it is the last Adam who saved us by his own blood. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We have this alien righteousness, you see. This is, this is part of this inheritance that he refers to here in verse 12. You see, that's what, that's what Luther called the righteousness of Jesus. He called it an alien righteousness because it did not start within himself. It came from God. And so it's the righteousness of Christ that we receive by imputation. 
1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Do you see Him there, the Son of God, dying for you? Verse 14, By His blood... We have this redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. Do you see Him there suffering for you, dying for you, crushed for you, smitten of God for you, afflicted by God, crushed by the Father for you? Do you see Him there? Consider the pain of the cross unbearable. Every movement signaled great pain to the human brain. Movement was necessary to breathe nailed feet to the cross beam, pressing upward as his body was slouching downward in fatigue, press upward just to get another breath, his flesh literally hanging from his back where they whipped him, pressed against the beam as he pressed himself upward, pain renewed, slashed flesh, open wounds, blood dripping down his face, running into his eyes, blurred vision, soldiers playing games at the foot of the cross, naked body hanging shamefully before people, no pain medication to dull the intensity. With each heartbeat, the pain grew with greater intensity No hospice nurses caring for him. Blood dripping down his forehead, down his flesh, dripping to the sod of earth beneath the cross. The emotional pain. Mocked by the Jewish people. Mocked by the Jewish leaders. Reviled by the criminals who hung next to him. The father crushing him as he was dying in the place of his people. Spurgeon said, it was midnight at midday, the sixth through the ninth hour from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that the ninth hour was when they would be offering up the daily evening sacrifice at the temple. And it was at that very moment that the Son of the living God ordained by the meticulous providence of God, was hanging there on that cursed tree. Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. As the Son of God was dying there, the ignominious death of the Son of the living God, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In John 19.30, when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. Tetelestai, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. And when the Son of the living God died that day, He died that souls might be saved, that sin might be forgiven, hearts cleansed, lives transformed, guilt removed, condemnation lifted, righteousness granted, eternal life imparted, the wrath of God justified, the judgment of God fulfilled, the penalty of sin paid, and all possibility of hell for the elect would be abolished forever. This is why we can sing, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. John Flavel once said the following, Christ is the very essence of all delights and pleasures the very soul and substance of them, as all the rivers are gathered into the ocean, which is congregation or meeting, 
for all the waters in the world, so Christ is that ocean in which all true delights and pleasures meet. This is why we can sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, thy glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. And the last stanza, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, my encouragement today, my exhortation for you, is that you would learn that no matter what you face in this life, no matter what you're facing now in this present moment, is that you would long, keep your eyes fixed upon Christ so that you can live what has been termed, and I think and diminished in so many ways, into a shallow Christianity, this idea of a victorious Christian life. I'm not talking about the books that are written that talk about the victorious Christian life that's so shallow, so shallow. I'm talking about a real, genuine, victorious Christian life that produces the fruit of the gospel, which is thanksgiving, which is gratitude in God through Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation for the Christian faith, end quote. You want to really waste your Christian life? Then just be unhappy all the time. Just be unhappy, ungrateful, without joy. That would be a waste. But may it be said of us that we, that we experience the grace of God and that we demonstrate the grace of God by living a life of gratefulness for the glory of God. So therefore, my brothers and sisters in Christ, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are grateful for the Spirit's work in our lives to bring us to the place of saving grace and for the ongoing work of sanctification whereby we are made more holy and righteous on a daily walk in the Lord. And we pray that our lives would not contradict what we claim that we have in Christ, but that we would be joyful, thankful, and grateful, able to give thanks for all things, in all circumstances, at all times, as the Apostle Paul, even in jail at midnight, could sing with joy and give thanks. Oh God, we love you. Thank you for saving us. Help us to live lives that put on display the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.